Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we talk about our political institutions, why they are failing, and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drotman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I am an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. All right. So in this episode, we're going to spend some time thinking through two counterfactuals, two presidential elections, the 1960 election and the 2012 election, and think about what American political development would have looked like if those elections had gone the other way. Now, I confess I am a huge nerd lover of this kind of counterfactual history. You know, I love like Man in the in the High Castle and a few other other books in this genre because it it like helps I think to think about how much contingency there is in history and how much we were sort of heading in in a direction and we were going to wind up in that direction no matter what. And I, I think my, my own personal theory is that most of the time events don't matter all that much because most of the time there are forces that are kind of all leading in a direction, but that there are these occasional moments in which had things gone a different way, we could have gone down a path that's completely different. So, you know, I mean, this is all speculation. It's all fun and and all that. But, you know, I, I think it does help us to understand some of the ways our institutions and our parties and our politics and, and history all work together in ways that, that are, I think, quite illuminating. I mean, the problem with, you know, doing social science is you only get to observe the world once. So in some ways, this is, you know, trying to trying to think about what are the causal mechanisms that, that lead us to a certain place by thinking about, like, how much contingency is there? So with that, I'm going to introduce what I want to talk about as a historical contingency. And, you know, the thing that I, I've wondered about a number of times is what would have happened if Richard Nixon had won the 1960 election instead of John F. Kennedy? And you know, this was a very close election. It was close in a lot of states. There are, you know, some allegations that Kennedy only won because there was fraud in his favor. And, you know, I mean, and Nixon conceded. I mean, we could also ask what would have happened if Nixon hadn't conceded. But, like, you know, it could have very easily gone the other way. Uh, and, in fact, in, in my book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, I envision a scenario in which maybe maybe Nixon made the call to Martin Luther King's wife when Martin Luther King was in jail. And, and that was something that Kennedy did that really helped shore up support for African-American voters. Or, you know, maybe something else could have happened. Uh, but, you know, I'm curious what you all think. How would American politics have developed differently if Nixon had beaten Kennedy in 1960? Well, I mean, I think he first off, I mean, I'm not an expert on the election, but from what I've read, 
it certainly appears that Lyndon Johnson being on the ticket helped Kennedy to get Texas. And one way in which Lyndon Johnson was able to do that was finding a bunch of ballots in the trunks of some cars on the Rio Grande, maybe. So there's, I guess that's an interesting relation to the concurrent political debates that we have about elections and election uh, fraud. And again, I don't think that Biden stole the election. I think it's a lot different and a lot harder, if not impossible, to steal an election in 12 states uh, without anybody knowing about it than it is in one state, per se. Um, but, I, you know, if Nixon had won, the, the question that I, that on my mind, is what happens with regard to the Republican Party and the civil war within the party, not or the struggle within the party that we see four years later with Barry Goldwater and Rocky, Nelson Rockefeller, not Rocky Balboa, of course. And does that get accelerated? Does it not get accelerated? Is it delayed at all? And that, you know, that's one question I have. The other question I have, I think, also relates to the domestic political agenda. I don't think that and I, we'll get to this, I think, with my example. I don't think a lot changes necessarily inside of Congress because I don't think – I think we give Johnson too much credit for making Congress work during this period. And Kennedy, maybe not enough credit, incidentally, for making it work. But I don't think a lot changes there. But I wonder what it does to our historical view of Nixon. And is he is he still the you know the very sneaky and tricky guy? Is he you know ultimately eventually going to leave in, in disgrace? Uh, what happens in Vietnam? Uh, you know, there's a lot of things. It's a really interesting concept, and and I think it really does challenge us to see what role and impact individuals have on our politics. Julia, do you have do you have thoughts? I do, although I, I don't have like a really snappy answer. It seems like there's essentially kind of three strains that this could this could follow. And one is is sort of what happens when Nixon is president instead of Kennedy and then Johnson as the civil rights movement heats up and as a sort of post Brown v. Board, post Little Rock um, situation unfolds in the United States. The second question is about, I think, about kind of Nixon's domestic agenda, which a lot of people still remember for having a mixture of of more conservative and what would now be considered more liberal kinds of, of components and like what that might have looked like without the Great Society and without the JFK presidency. And then, you know, the, the third thing, I guess, is there's probably a whole foreign policy story to be told that I'm not going to attempt. But there, the third thing is sort of uh, what James alluded to about Nixon's reputation as someone who is tricky, someone who is dishonest, someone who sort of besmirched the office of the presidency with his his paranoia and his misuse of executive power. And I actually see the way that Watergate unfolded as being really linked up with the post-civil rights movement. And I'm, I'm not the only person who has that view. I think Stanley Cutler in The Wars of Watergate also articulates that, but I'm, I don't know that it's the dominant view either. But I do think at that point, Nixon was reacting to the politics of protest surrounding the Civil War and surrounding the Vietnam War. Uh, and the sort of late 60s political situation gave rise to the kinds of abuses of power and paranoia that, that Nixon engaged in. I think those, that context would have been a lot different if Nixon himself had also been the person in charge of those decisions about both about how to proceed in Vietnam and, and how to proceed with civil rights. And I think that Nixon would have been faced with a similar dilemma to what Kennedy was dealing with in the early 60s, which was 
the need to preserve political coalitions, the need to work with Southern Democrats in Congress. That would have been just as much true for Nixon as it was for Kennedy in some ways. And yet also the need to respond to the to the civil rights movement. So in some ways, I don't know how different that would have been. And when we look at Nixon's not counterfactual, but actually factual record on civil rights, I promise never to say that sentence again. It's sort of all over the place, right? In some ways, it looks really, really backlashy and reactionary and, and in other ways, less so. And I think that that probably would have been fairly similar in the early 60s. And so whoever Nixon's successor would have been, would have been sort of saddled with the aftermath of that. And in that sense, I guess what I'm saying, I didn't realize this is what I was going to say when I started saying it, but in that sense, I think a lot of what shaped the Nixon presidency was structural. And that if you swap the individuals around, it might not end up looking that different. That's my, that's my final answer. All right. That's super interesting. Good. It's the book I'm working on. <laughs> oh, good. All right. Well, I can't wait to, to read it. I thought it was brilliant. I love it. Can't wait to watch the movie. So here's here's how I I mean, I, I think that the civil rights movement is happening in the, the early 60s. And I think there's tremendous pressure on whoever is the president to take a leadership role in that. And, you know, I mean, I think Nixon's record is complicated in part because the, you know, the Eisenhower administration was like cautiously pro-civil rights and the Republican Party of 1960 had about the same record on civil rights as the Democratic Party of 1960. But, you know, by the time you know, Nixon gets elected finally in 68. Now the politics are the politics of a backlash and Nixon is riding that and the South is shifting into Republican territory because the Democrats are the party of civil rights. But I kind of think that the Republican Party would have really leaned into being the party of civil rights uh, and you would have had the Reascendency of civil rights in the Republican Party, and it would have been kind of a return to to Lincoln Republicanism, and it would have been the the South that was really isolated as the the Democratic stronghold, and you would have had Northern liberals start to move over, Northern liberal Democrats start to move over to the Republican Party. I think you would have had a, a realignment that looked very differently, and in, in many ways, much more like the Civil War cleavage. And I, I think in some ways, it, it might have brought about the moment that we're in now with this geographical divide a lot earlier in our political history. The other thing James talking about about Vietnam, uh, which also came to define the politics of the late 60s and early 70s, I think Nixon might have not gotten us into Vietnam uh, in the way that Kennedy did, because, you know, the, Kennedy had to, the Democrats had to prove that they weren't you know, weak on communism and they had a, to you know, remember the missile gap and kind of Kennedy had to show that he was even tougher on foreign, on communism than Nixon. You know, whereas, you know, I think Nixon's, the kind of Nixon goes to China thing that happened in Nixon's actual presidency, Nixon could have could have ended the war in Vietnam, I think, very differently. Uh, but, you know, who knows? To the extent that the 60s was going to be a decade of, of tumult because of the generational shift, uh, and it certainly happened in you know, 1968 was a, was a cataclysmic year for politics you know, across Western uh, democracies. You know, we, we would have seen that. But I, I really think it was a hinge moment in which, you know, you would have had a very 
different Republican Party develop. But, you know, after after 64 and, you know, then Goldwater moves the Republican Party in his direction. Uh, and then the backlash to civil rights is a backlash against Democrats. That really changes the nature of the party coalitions in American politics. I think it doesn't. The Republican Party is not necessarily the party opposed to civil rights. I don't think it's opposed to civil rights now. I don't think it was certainly not then. I mean, we can all argue about that. But if you think back to the 1964 Civil Rights Act that passed the Senate, and in many respects, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, I think, um, you know, Dirksen was a key player in this, Everett Dirksen, the minority leader, a Republican. And the New York Times front page of the paper of record, when it lauds the Senate for passing this historic act, in the same headline, it says, and Dirksen berates Goldwater for voting no, <laughs> right? There is a division in the party in Goldwater. It's certainly in the Washington, D.C.-based party. It's certainly in the minority of that. He's not yet created a situation overall where he can, um, where the party has come his way yet. It takes a long time. And even today, I, I would argue it's got a lot of policy positions that are uh, that are Goldwater opposes. Goldwater was not opposed to civil rights himself either. He desegregated his family's department stores. He desegregated the Arizona National Guard. You know, he is not, his his concern was the relationship of the, um, of the party or the relationship with the federal government and what its proper role in the Constitution was. Now, the last thing is, with, with regard to Vietnam, it's, it's, it's LBJ that really drives it up. It's not necessarily uh, Kennedy. It's LBJ who gets us going as well. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm very intriguing. I agree with you. It is a very important moment. And I also agree with Julia that I think that a lot of it is just the politics of the era and the, and the structures that are happening. I want to just jump in. I think one of the, the critical things to think about, the way I would reframe this question, and here I'm again sort of just uh, flogging what I'm working on, but I think it's, you know, it's one thing to say, well, one party kind of became the party of civil rights and one party became the party against civil rights. And there's some truth to that. But the other thing is that what it meant to, what it meant for a party to position itself about civil rights in 1960 and what that meant in 1968 were very different things. And that the actual living with the actual policy changes and living with the social reaction to policy changes creates a very different politics within each party. Um, and I think that that generates some more nuanced questions and just thinking about the racial sorting that has happened. Again, I'm just kind of trying to preview um, some of the ideas that I'm writing about right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. I mean, I'm tremendously oversimplifying it. But the vote in Congress was bipartisan. It was two-thirds of Republicans, two-thirds of Democrats. It's just that Democrats came to own the civil rights issue. And of course, that was 65. So it's not main civil rights act. So I mean, who knows, maybe Nixon wouldn't have been reelected to a second term and Democrats. But you know, I think at that point, the, the Republicans were, I mean, the, the Republicans didn't move against civil rights until there was a huge backlash. So who knows? Contingency? Was it, was it fated to be? Could, could it have been gone a different way? You know, uh, somewhere on Earth, too, we can observe that. All right, Julia, what what counterfactual do you want to explore in this special edition of Politics in Question? So the the counterfactual that I want to explore in this special edition of Politics in Question is a little bit more recent one, um, but also one that concerns the workings of intra-party politics. And that is Mitt Romney wins the 2012 election. This is one that that comes up a lot. It came up a number of times when I was uh, at the most recent American Political Science Association meeting. 
I don't know why, but for some reason, this seems to be the sort of question running up to the, the Trump years that American politics scholars are really fascinated by. You know, what did Trump or excuse me, would a Romney victory have somehow prevented Trumpian politics? And again, I want to offer a, a sort of what I see as overcomplicated and probably very unsatisfying answer to that. The way that I see this is that a Romney presidency probably would have allowed those forces to continue to get even more pissed off and to sort of foment within the Republican Party. I think that the real letting of the kind of grievance politics cat out of the bag and the kind of highlighting of the difference between these two wings of the Republican Party was really Sarah Palin's uh, nomination as vice president in 2008. And that under a kind of, you know, Romney-Ryan administration, that movement would have been able to just continue to do what it did, which was to run partly against um, partly against the Democrats, but also partly against the Republican establishment. So I don't think it would have prevented a Trump run. What I think would have been different would have been how that bore out in presidential politics and, you know, kind of what that all might have looked like. So here I, I want to delve a little bit into political time. And the question I've been sort of thinking about, why did Trump look so much like what we've come to know as a disjunctive figure, a sort of outsider figure that signals the end of a political era? In this case, this would be like a Republican Reagan era. Trump really looked like that. But the 2020 election didn't look like that kind of election. You know, those these kinds of figures that signal the end of the party era, Jimmy Carter, Herbert Hoover, tend to be the incumbent presidents who lose by a landslide and you kind of see the emergence of a new coalition. Trump lost in 2020, but actually picked up vote share. And we don't really see the emergence of a serious new coalition under the kind of Biden presidency. I, I think that Romney would have been a more similar disjunctive president, um, sort of deeply disconnected from the politics of the Reagan administration just by time, disconnected from George W. Bush's administration, and just, you know, a kind of much more easily isolated kind of political figure. And I don't think that Romney himself would have easily built up an alternative political movement. So I think that movement would have still emerged, but without the seal of the presidency behind it. And so I think that that would have actually made for very different, very different politics and possibly allowed for a democratic opposition movement to sort of emerge while the party was out of power. So I think it would have changed those dynamics, it would have changed the dynamics of the kind of social movements that emerged during a presidency such that you would have seen this more right populist movement, maybe also a left populist movement, perhaps accelerating some of the forms of, of polarization that we that we see today. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100% that you know, had Romney been elected, it wouldn't have done very little to uh, stem the sort of liberal populism, you know, backlash that that Trump wrote and then amplified in his presidency. I mean, that was already happening with the Tea Party movement. And you know, Romney was not particularly popular with the base. He was sort of the reluctant choice that, you know, he, he was the guy who seemed like he could win because he was, you know, quote unquote, more moderate, established, I, I don't know, handsome, but I don't know what it was. But had he won, 
and there were times in the race in which it looked like maybe he would, he would have immediately been faced with this very difficult political choice, which is what to do about Obamacare. And this was something in which there was no good solution at the time for Republicans because they were just running against. They had nothing to replace it with. And it was starting to be even a little popular. I mean, it would have just been a disaster that would have consumed the first year of his administration. I mean, in a way, to some extent, it did, did for Trump as well. But, you know, the politics had, had moved on a little bit more. So I think, I think he would have been attacked from the right. He, you know, he would have tried to hedge out some compromise on immigration. And the politics of that were very tricky. So I, I just don't see how his presidency wouldn't crumble in the fracturing of the Republican coalition. Now, maybe Trump himself wouldn't have emerged. Maybe he would have as the kind of leading figure of the populist right. But, you know, I think the other thing to think about is what would have what would have happened in, in the Democratic Party. And you know, to some extent, it's a question of like, if Obama had lost that election, well, why was it that he lost? Was it that you know, did, did he run the same campaign in, in this in this uh, counterfactual world um, or did he run a different campaign? Was there a, a, an analysis of, of maybe race uh, being the thing that that worked against Obama? I mean, part, part of it is, you know, and this is we had Seth Maskin on at some point to talk about his learning from Lost book. But it's, it's a question of what is what is the lesson that losing parties take away? And to, to some extent, you know, when we think about political time and the kind of rise and fall of different party coalitions, I mean, we're, we're sort of in this weird moment in which by political time standards, we would like expect it's a realignment moment. But the problem is that we're in this moment of such deep partisan polarization that it's hard to imagine what that cross-cutting issue is that would split the parties in such a way that you could have a decisive election. And so it just seems like everything is dug in. And this is sort of a different moment in the cycle of political time because everything is so nationalized in our politics now that it's hard to to see what could change in, in this trench warfare. You know, I think we would have, I think we'd kind of be in the same places as we are now, maybe with some different figures. But I think the forces that have been driving the polarization of the parties, largely geographical sorting and the uh, sort of rising extremist populism on the right, you know, we're, we're all continuing. I think you, maybe you would have even had more of an acceleration of the economic populism on the left. What do you think? How's that sound? Yeah, that's so that's a good question. I mean, probably that might have those dynamics might have been the same, right? The Hillary Clinton clears the field. She wouldn't necessarily have been Obama's kind of handpicked successor, but she still would have had a lot of clout in the Democratic field. And that, of course, as you point out, seems really critical to the dynamics of Sanders being able to run as kind of her only opponent. Yeah, so I think this actually would have been different. Um, now that I'm now that I'm kind of thinking thinking about it, the dynamics of that field would have been different in a couple ways. One is that they would have been perhaps less derived from Obama world politics. So 
I think it would have been much less about who is carrying on Obama's legacy, handpicked successor in Hillary Clinton versus Sanders, who had been, I mean, a pretty, as these things go in contemporary politics, a pretty vocal critic of the administration. I think instead what you would have seen is much more of a kind of middle leftist emergence within the Democratic Party. I think you're right that this would have been the kind of natural response to what we can imagine the Romney administration might have been like, a sort of 47% administration, to use the phrase from the 2012 election. You know, so I can imagine sort of trying to think who would have been who might have been the, the people behind this? And I keep I keep thinking of the sort of populism embraced by John Edwards in two thousand eight. And I think by by then, too, that John Edwards himself had been fallen to disrepute because it turns out he was super sleazy. But he was one of the early people in kind of national politics articulating some of these more populist ideas. And so I think it would have been perhaps less rooted in Sanders' sorts of claims about the political establishment and his own kind of running against party establishment instead more kind of fulsomely connected with um, with a policy agenda and aimed at being an alternative to um, to the Republicans and to the Republican orthodoxy that Romney might have really tried to tried to affiliate himself with in certain ways. So, you know, I think that's what I think that's what have been different about the Democratic Party. I think that you know, Obama would have just been much less influential within the Democratic Party. And that's, you know, or within this, its sort of trajectory. So I think that's worth kind of noting. Yeah, the the other thing that, that, you know, now that we're getting closer to the present is thinking how the 2014 midterms might have gone in which, you know, the Republicans, you know, picked up a, a couple of key Senate seats that they still hold. I mean, you remember, you know, Mark Mark Begich nearly uh, held on to his his seat in, in Alaska, a Democrat. Kay Hagan lost in North Carolina. You know, a Democratic seat in Iowa that Tom Harkin had held for a long time went to Joni Ernst. Colorado, Louisiana, Montana, South Dakota that was probably gone. West Virginia that was probably gone. But like you know, a few of these, few of these like seats could have could have stayed in in Democratic hands uh, for a little longer. And that, you know, that would have shaped the coalition that Democrats had and, and would have put Democrats in a bit, bit of a better position in the Senate, perhaps. So, you know, these things have interesting downstream effects. Yeah, let me let me push back against what I think about the Senate idea for a second. I think one possibility is that the, the Republicans would have actually done even better in the 2014 Senate races, because if you remember, two of the two of the races that they lost were Indiana and Missouri. Because they ran these kind of off-the-wall anti-establishment candidates who turned out to have really odious views on on various topics. And were those 2012? I think those are 2012, yeah. Okay, never mind. But, I mean, it could have been. Yeah, one was, um, I think Murdoch was 2014. At, you're, you're right, Aiken was 2012. Yeah, I thought they were both 2012. Well, I should have looked this up, um, but I wasn't anticipating talking about the Senate. But I think this point still stands, even if the, I'm wrong about the election years. So here's here's the point I was trying to make. Sorry about that. Here's the point I was trying to make. I think that if Romney had actually won in 2012, it would have really changed the dynamic of Republican leaders thinking, well, you know, this this brand doesn't work. I think the successive losses of McCain and Romney really made the Republican establishment sit on their hands during Trump's bid in 2016 for a long time because this, you know, I don't think they wanted Trump to win the nomination, but I think they thought, well, this other brand doesn't really work. 
And frankly, the kind of off-the-wall brand had worked pretty well. Um, and this anti-establishment brand had worked pretty well. And I don't think that that, like I said, I think the movement itself might have gotten stronger, but I think its relationship with the party establishment would have been more contentious because it would have been a really prominent example of, okay, we ran this really, you know, George H.W. Bush-style Republican with kind of moderate social views and an East Coast background and the very, you know, wealthy and patrician and a person, and he won. That would have created a much different set of election narratives. And so I think in some ways that that potentially would have spurred more, you know, more moderate candidates who would have been less vulnerable in some of those down ticket contests. Although, as you point out, those if those are those are mostly 2012 and before, then that's not really the timing doesn't work out the same way. You know, I think I think a lot of that depends on whether Romney is a successful president and whether he can hold that coalition together. I mean, it could also be the case that Romney himself gets pulled into being much more of a of a conservative zealot because he sees that that's the way that that things are going. And it's hard for him to govern from from the middle because Democrats are not going to work with him or or help him. And if Romney loses in 2016, you know, then I think that which I, I would sort of think it would be hard for him to win reelection, given the way that the Republican coalition is is moving with or without him. So that by 2020, you, you would see the emergence of Trump or a Trump like figure. Of course, you know, it might not have been Trump and maybe maybe there's something unique about Trump and his sort of particular personality and then that that leads us, you know, that could get us into another counterfactual, you know, which is what if Ted Cruz wins the Republican nomination in 2016 and I'm, I'm pretty sure Cruz would have been the Republican nominee if not for Trump. Uh, and he represents a, you know, similar Tea Party style, although maybe a little bit more competent version of that. This is a way better counterfactual. What happens if Trump doesn't win in 2016? That's actually when I feel like we don't, we don't see enough talk about that. Like there's all this, you know, I throw this out casually all the time. Like, oh, you know, President Marco Rubio, President Jeb Bush, right? I guess I've never really entertained the Ted Cruz counterfactual. Oh, you mean, you mean if Ted Cruz wins in 2016? Yeah, no, I mean, if Trump doesn't run in 2016, yeah, like, which who emerges from that field? How does that field look different? Or there were there any Republicans who didn't run at all? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course, everybody thought Trump was a joke. So yeah, nobody would have changed. No one would have changed their behavior. Right. I mean, I think I think if not for if not for Trump, Ted Cruz easily wins that primary based on the, the fact that a lot of a lot of Trump supporters looked a lot like Cruz supporters in terms of their demographics and policy preferences. And then the question is, does does Ted Cruz beat Hillary Clinton? And I think the answer is yes, because there were certainly problems with Hillary Clinton's candidacy. And there's also a fair amount of, of sexism that, that that cuts against Hillary Clinton as a president. So then what happens if Ted Cruz is president in 2016 or becomes president in 2017? Right, which also I think kind of looks like you know, some of these elements of the disjunctive presidency we were talking about before, but let me, hang on. I'm having trouble with this, and I'm not sure why. Partly, I don't have the 2016 stuff in front of me. I do remember there was a period going, leading up to about Super Tuesday, where in the 538 Live blogs, I was referring to the candidate who was beating Trump as Med Crubio, who is the sort of combination of Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz that was beating Trump. 
Like, if you added their vote total together, I think that, I mean, I, I see your point. Like, where where would Trump supporters have gone if not for, if Trump hadn't been in the field, would they have gone to Cruz? Would some of them not have been voting in the primary? Um, never underestimate low propensity, you know, primary turnout. But yeah, so I'm having trouble with this for a variety of reasons. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to make a counterfactual wager we will never be able to prove, um, which is that that would have been, that would have been a sort of going into the contested convention kind of situation where similarly to the Trump situation, there would have been a stalemate among all these establishment candidates. And also, if anyone is sort of like going to inspire more stubbornness and more hatred among other elite Republicans, it's Ted Cruz. So in that scenario, you know, Chris Christie stays in, maybe Chris Christie becomes more pugnacious and offers more of that kind of persona, which is something that was also part of Trump's appeal. And something Christie certainly has, um, you know, I think Kasich still stays in Rubio, maybe Scott Walker doesn't drop out as quickly. Um, I think that's a set of counterfactuals that makes sense. I mean, was there anyone who would have joined the field if Trump hadn't? That's pro- you're probably right that that no. But you know, would people have stayed in longer? Maybe. So I think this goes into the convention. I think that that's that's what we get. Oh man, the multiverse is is buzzing right now. So all right, to, exactly. just to, just to keep this interesting. So 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 who does the convention pick? Yeah, that's I have I have literally never thought about this question, which is insane. Maybe I thought about it in 2016, but believing all my innocent 2016 beliefs, who does a convention pick? I have a hard time imagining a convention picks Ted Cruz, unless it's a scenario in which Ted Cruz is sort of the clear the clear vote favorite. I think whoever is ahead in the vote, I mean, the convention sort of has to pick pick whoever is is ahead. Do they? Kind of. I mean. I don't know. I mean, if Cruz is like forty percent of the delegates, like, and nobody else is more than twenty percent, sure. Then if if that's the case, sure. I'm not gonna do delegate math on the fly. I'm just not. Um, but let's let's imagine like a different scenario where it's more even. That's a that's a situation in which I could actually see the the Repu- We sort of go back to this this question from 2012, in which the Republican establishment reemerges and rides again and picks Jeb Bush. And then we have the Bush Clinton race that we were all dreading. And I don't I don't even know who wins that. Nobody. Nobody wins that. American democracy ceases to function and, and just collapse in, in a in a puff of, of smoke. <laughs> so no matter what, that's where we end. We were dead all along. This is interesting, and and, and we we've I think we, we've lost James to a television interview, so now it's just you and me. But what's really interesting here, and I think we should kind of just just riff on this for a little while and then conclude. It is you know there was a lot of discussion in 2016 about the failure of the Republican Party to prevent Trump, and. So it was a question of of what was the you know what would have happened had the Republican Party sort of organized and you know shifted uh, the nomination to Jeb Bush who was 
you know, sort of the most most pure Republican establishment figure. And and you know, the question is, w- would that have really changed the the trajectory of the Republican Party? I mean, can you keep the Trump Cruz insurgents out forever? Uh, and you know, so it's a question of of was this a failure of the Republican Party establishment to sort of like decide on behalf of the establishment, or was this just the reflection of the changing? nature of the Republican coalition and that if you court the racists for long enough, eventually they're going to take over your party. So I think I'm going to answer this once again in the in the framework of the, the project I'm working on now, and it, this may not be totally applicable to this multiverse we've created. So just to clarify, the 2016 election we're talking about right now is one in which Obama has served a second term, but Trump isn't running. Yeah. Um, okay. So because otherwise, you know, th- then then we've made it even more complicated. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm never. I'm never going to come back from this. So so I guess what I'm thinking about is that I think that what you have in in 2016 then is this sort of reactionary element in the Republican Party that has actually been there for a long time. So you've got the the Pat Buchanan wing, you've got the Duncan Hunter wing, the anti-immigration wing. And while everybody was distracted um, during the the 2000s about thinking the big division and the Republican Party was about same-sex marriage or whatever, I I think really the, the real tension in that coalition was about immigration. And so what I think comes out of 2016 is that Trump has this sort of perfect combination of being able to articulate loudly that segment of the Republican Party, allowing the establishment to distance themselves from it while simultaneously benefiting from those votes. And I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again a lot of times. And also sort of being really flexible on a lot of other issues and being really well known. So I can imagine a variety of people credibly picking up that anti-immigration sentiment in 2016, but not with those other pieces. And so if you get into a scenario where, you know, the convention picks Jeb Bush or whatever, then that element of the party, much like the 2012 Romney scenario, that element of the party doesn't go away. They they continue to simmer. And, you know, we, we eventually have to be on a be on a collision course with those politics. However, their relationship with the Republican establishment looks, however, those sort of coalition politics look, um, I think that we never get away from that path in in our country's trajectory. So, I mean, which is just to say that, you know, to to the extent that we, we want to talk about the importance of, of party leadership or strong party heads, there's only so much that they can do with any particular coalition. I think this has been useful in that in the value of counterfactual thinking is, you know, that it helps us to understand the limits of what particular actors are working with. So it's easy to say, oh, the Republican Party should have prevented uh, Donald Trump from taking over the party. But, you know, that that was the trajectory. Seems like what we've kind of gathered from these two counterfactuals is that that was the trajectory of the party. And at some point, you can only hold back a dam from bursting for so long if, if the pressure on it is building. All right. Well, this has been a special counterfactual history episode of Politics in Question. And send us your counterfactual history suggestions for when we do this again. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. 
This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.